Welcome to Drum Talk International, the Gretsch Sessions, which is brought to you by Gaver Music. My name is Gemma Hill and I'll be your host for this mini-series where I'll be speaking to some of the hugest names in drums. We're celebrating 140 years of Gretsch drums by finding out the story that connects these artists to the brand that they love so much. Before we continue, a small favour... Please like, comment and follow this podcast to support what I've worked on so far and to increase the likelihood of more episodes in the future. Now, let's carry on. For the last episode of this mini-series, my guest is perhaps best known for being a member of the Average White Band in the 1970s and then Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers from the 1990s. He has performed and or recorded with the likes of Shaka Khan, Eric Clapton, George Harrison, Stevie Nicks, Johnny Cash, Mick Jagger. There are too many others to mention, but the staggering list goes on. Here he is. It's Steve Ferroni. OK, start the interrogation. Steve Ferroni, <laughs> welcome to Drum Talk International, the Gretsch Sessions. It's really good to be here. On, really good to be here, especially international. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Where are you? Are you in Germany? I'm in Germany, yeah. I'm a Brit in Germany. I I actually uh, I actually performed a wedding the other the a uh, couple of weeks ago in Spain between a German and a French a German man and a French lady. Ooh. Yeah. Were there any any extraordinary things going on in the ceremony or Oh, was, uh, I was the officiant. I was officiant. I was officiated the wedding. I'm a minister. Were they really close friends or something? What's the connection? They were close friends of a close friend, and uh, we had we had dinner a few years ago um, in uh, two thousand and eighteen, I think it was. And uh, and in the dinner conversation, it came up that I was an ordained minister that I'd married up about six people, and uh, and and none of them ever got divorced, dared to get divorced, and one of those was my son. <laughs> and then they called me and they said, "Will you marry us up?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." And then lockdown happened, so it got postponed for three years, and uh, finally they got married. But um, but there, there was a very funny thing that happened the day after the wedding. They had a brunch, and I was talking with the uh, father of the bride. Yeah, and I'm standing talking to them, and they entered, and everybody applauded, you know, as they do. With them. And I said to the father of the bride, I said, uh, "So, do you think she's pregnant?" <laughs> and he said, "If if the groom was French, she'd be pregnant, but she's German, so she's probably not." <laughs> so I so then I said to him, I said, "Do you want to come and visit me?" In Los Angeles, and you can come, and you if you uh, just for recreation, you can torture my son-in-law too. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you had like sideline things going on with your career, but I was not expecting that. No, uh, it's not exactly. I mean, I don't get paid for it. I mean, they did fly me, fly me and Julia, my my, my fiance. They did fly us uh, out there first class for the thing. It's a beautiful wedding in Tarragona in Spain. It was wonderful. So you're not about to start doing that for like extra business. Uh, it is all expenses paid. <laughs> 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 uh, 
No, put it out there. You never know. Somebody might want to get married somewhere exotic. I prefer like warm places, to tell you the truth. I don't like cold. I won't go and marry anybody in the cold because I'll probably get it over within a second. But do you? Do you? Yes. Okay, fine. You're done. Thank you. Let me get in the warm. <laughs> How do you summarize your career to someone that you've never met before? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. When I, when I started playing the drums... Uh, uh, I was 12 and by the time I was 13 or 14 I knew that this was what I wanted to do for a living when they started to ask me at school what do you want to do when you leave school I said well I want to be a drummer I want to be a musician a drummer and they said well you can't do that because it's not a real living so I've never had a job and never having a job uh, I've raised uh, four children (laughs) Uh, they've all gone to school and uh, I own my own house. I've travelled all over the world and I've just never had a job except having some fun playing the drums. Pretty good, eh? It's been an unbelievable uh, and continues to be an unbelievable career, the choice that I chose. I I love doing it. I'm 73 years old now, which is another thing that's kind of unbelievable being a 73-year-old rock icon. All my friends tell me I'm a rock star. I don't really feel like a rock star. <laughs> but uh, 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 I'm just a, a drummer and, and I love doing what I do. And uh, I've retired. I've got a pension. And, uh, so, um, and I still work all the time. As you can see, you know, drums all over the place. It's a bit of a mess in my studio. You can see that. I'm, I'm, I clean it up every once in a while. I take a look. I can't stay like this anymore. But <laughs> I can see just the most beautiful snare drum collection behind you and it makes me want to dive in and look at them all. Yes, I do. Actually, it goes up a little bit more than that. And then there's all those down on the floor, uh, those ones I take with me to the studio and some of those I take out. So I switch them, switch them out depending on what the uh, gig is. And I have a, a, a beautiful 1950 Gretsch Broadcasters kit that you can see there behind me. And uh, I bought that. I bought it. I played it in a... Uh, a, a drum store in New York and uh, fell in love with it and it was very expensive and I bought it. It's a, it's the same age as I am, except it's in a bit better condition. I'm going to ask you a bit more about Gretsch in a moment, but your discography is just like the who's who of music and I wondered if there have been any points in your career where you've really felt Wow, I'm doing something where I'm actually really making music history. Well, I, I don't think I don't think that you realise, you know, when you are uh, making music history that you're actually doing it. You know, so, and then all of a sudden it becomes music history, and then people want to call you up and interview you about it, and then you, you sort of wish that you paid more attention to it. You know, for example, when I when I played for George Harrison's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and um, Prince Prince sort of showed up, in, and uh, and suddenly he wasn't supposed to be there, and all of a sudden he was going to play with us, uh, and then uh, you know Tom just said to him well, casually, you know, well, why don't you take the second guitar solo, and why my guitar gently weeps, and I think it has something like eighty million views <laughs> on YouTube alone. You know, there's two two different versions. It was so popular that they did a different edit of the of the uh, film featuring Prince a little bit more 
it was a you know and you, you look at it and it's like wow man what a guitar solo that was so it was just he he pulled out all the stops on that one and 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 put on a show for us at the same time it was it was just an amazing uh, amazing experience but there's there's been so many so many uh so many things people call me up and ask me about spe- specific uh tracks uh that I played on and and uh, I, I got a pretty good memory when it comes to it. Uh, sometimes people remind me about stuff and I don't even know that I've done it. Sometimes some of the songs, like Ordinary World, I mean, I remember when I got the demo for that song, uh, Duran song, Duran Duran song. It, it was funny how I got that. I was driving down a street in London and I saw Warren Cucurullo. I was over rehearsing for George Harrison's tour. Warren... Um, uh, I, I saw this guy walking down a street and it looked like Warren, but he, he, he was like a bodybuilder. And I didn't know that Warren, had, I hadn't seen him in a few years and he, he'd been working out, lifting weights. And he, you know, and I said, hey, hey, Warren, hey, Warren, how you doing? He said, oh, you're in town. I need you to do a session. And I said, well, I don't, I mean, this is, I'm driving and he's walking, you know, on the main street in traffic, of course, in, in London. Uh, Chelsea, it's in Chelsea, the main street there in Chelsea. And uh, and one said, okay, so, well, just call me when you can do it. And he threw a cassette through the through the window of my car and I, and I drove off and I took the cassette and I plugged it in and it was Ordinary World, you know, just a demo of Ordinary World. And I called him up uh, uh, when I got back to the hotel and I said, Warren, you know, this is a hit song. It sounds fine as it is. You really don't need me on here. And he said, "Yeah, we want you. We want you to play on it. We, you got to come and play on it." So I worked out what you know what the what the rehearsal schedule was, and then after rehearsal, I popped over uh, to Warren's uh, studio in, uh, in I think it was in um, Battersea, and uh, and we recorded Ordinary World. And then people call me up and say. Well, well, what was that experience? Well, it, it, it was more of an experience actually getting getting to the point of doing it. I don't really remember too much about being in the studio other than I sat down and did my job. But uh, that was a hit song whether I played on it or not. And fortunately, I did get to play on it, I, even, even though I tried to talk, talk them out of using me to do it. <laughs> How has earning your living as a drummer changed over the years? Uh, well... At first, it was the same for as, as it has been for everybody. It was a struggle. Uh, I did the starving musician bit, you know. Uh, lived up in London in a one one room one room with two other guys, and uh, and we'd have to go out and go try to go to the clubs at night, and we'd go up and talk, you know, say to the to the doorman that we were musicians and we didn't have any money. And then, you know, out of the kindness of their hearts, they would let us go into places like the Speakeasy. And they sort of, you know, they like to have other young musicians around. I guess maybe they didn't know if this musician was going to be the next uh, the next thing or something, but they were kind, very kind to musicians. And and we'd go and hang out in the clubs and meet other musicians that were, that were starving and others that were on their way up. You know, there were some difficult times, uh, some really uh, being in a van and crashing a van in a snowstorm and sitting on an autobahn in in uh, in Belgium and not really knowing whether we were going to get run into by another truck that was coming down the hill in this big snowstorm and putting all the gear on a train and 
going down to Rome and getting down there and the weather was beautiful and supposed to be there for two weeks and I stayed there for three years. <laughs> and this is before, I, you know, before telephones, everybody, my, my family didn't have telephone until later on. And uh, so we'd have to write letters home and, and and, uh, and and you know the you know the, the the drinking and the carousing and chasing girls and and uh, basically was the same as everybody uh, in the beginning uh, and then uh, and then things got better started getting into a band that was working a little bit like Brian Orgo who's playing playing clubs and established musician not a lot, not no no real money and then all of a sudden average white band big money. You know, uh, um, actually, before that, started moving into doing a little bit of recording and making some decent, decent, a decent living, being able to pay rent and stuff. Uh, and then uh, average white band stopped, and I'd already started doing a lot of studio work in New York, and then moving to studio work in New York, and then working with Eric Clapton and doing TV shows. And there were there, there was always moments when when. Uh, work would sort of dry up and you'd sit there wondering what you'd done, you know, if, if, had I offended somebody, had I done something wrong? And, uh, or the fear of, uh, of, be, of being a musician and maybe, I, maybe I, this is it for me because a lot of people did stop and do other things and, and then something else would show up, you know, and, and then, you know, I went and did a, just went to do a session with Tom, it turned out to be with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and I was employed for 25 years with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And uh, and, and still, when we didn't work, I, I had other stuff to do. And uh, and then, you know, the, the, the whole thing about Tom dying really unexpectedly, stuff still, you know, still, still playing and just still, still working. And then I got a pension, you know, I, I got a pension... I used to go to the uh, union and pick up my checks when I was a studio musician in New York and and I'd, I'd look at the checks and it would have all these deductions, you know, state tax and uh, uh, federal tax. And they said, well, you know, why am I paying? All the, half of my paycheck is gone here on taxes. Uh, uh, well, you know, your, your, your state tax is deductible from your, from your federal tax at the end of the year and I said, so what's this retirement stuff? You pay, your, you pay into your retirement fund. Why am I doing that? Is there any way around doing it? No. If you do sessions and you go through the union, they take out the retirement and that's it. So nothing I could do. I tried to get out of that when I was 60 years, 65 years old and I took my pension. I was pretty happy that they'd taken it. The funny thing is, is that uh, a lot of sessions now uh, don't, don't go through the union. I did one with the Temptations a couple of months ago, and then they sent me uh, uh, the paperwork to put it through the union, and I was pleasantly surprised. And I, I worry now. Well, worry. Uh, worry is kind of like praying for something bad to happen. But uh, I, um, I see, I see the younger musicians today that are that are doing studio work and and not getting paid through the union. And and I don't know how responsible musicians are when it comes to to put in a retirement fund away. Some, I guess there are some that do that, but I know I wasn't one that was going to do it. So that's a bit strange for me to see. So. And then the guys that play in clubs that do nothing to play but play in clubs, uh, you know, they're in the same boat. I mean, they, they just have to work forever, I guess. I mean, they get Social Security. It's just a little bit of money. 
but uh, uh, they have to work. They can't stop. They can't, you know, take their foot off the pedal. Today, for me, because of all the stuff that that was done for the union, and uh, uh, I kind of, I kind of cruise. You know, if if I work, I work. If I don't, I I go and married people get people married i see the that the business has changed and the way that that's uh, that things have gone on for for the musicians has changed i i guess things always have a way of working out for for musicians uh, we're very resourceful like i say uh, my phone still rings and people still make me record here or in the studios and and uh, people still ask me to go play places i don't particularly like being away from home for too long so i i don't really have to if I don't really want to, it, it got to a place of uh, of uh, uh, being able to see that you know you, you can when things get difficult. There's always the other side. If you just stay, just keep busy and keep playing, there's always the other side. So, if it's any consolation, any musicians listening and they're going through a hard time, through a dry period, don't worry, it'll change. You'll get busy again. Keep playing. What's been your favourite decade for working so far? <laughs> Yeah. Well, one, that's that's a bit difficult to go. I mean, I did two and a half decades with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That, that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I did a decade with Average White Band. I did a decade with uh, Eric Clapton. I had one year where I was working with Duran Duran and Eric Clapton. I got to go home for three weeks out of that year. That was, you know, uh, it was a great year, great year for money, but... You got to have a, a quality of life at home. I, I enjoy my my home. I, I can't pick out one decade that was any better than the other. They've all been different, and uh, I got to meet a lot of great, well, fantastic musicians. Uh, I I got to learn in in the in the seventies um, uh, uh, when I was in New York. I, I got to work with uh, so many great musicians in local eight hundred two. I called it the school of local eight hundred two. Uh, doing studio work, and then I would come out here and work with the uh, in Los Angeles and uh, and work with the the musicians of Local Forty Seven, just amazing musicians. And uh, this decade, I started to work a little bit more in Nashville, and there's some amazing musicians in Nashville. To pick out one decade, I can't do that. It's, uh, it's, it's, I'd say the seventies right through to today has just been a wonderful group of decades. <laughs> And uh, the music's been wonderful. Songs have been wonderful. There's great songwriters out there. Yeah. Do you have a favourite studio in the world to record in? Uh, I have a few. I love uh, Ocean Way. It used to be Ocean Way here. This is, they, they changed all the names to the studios now. They, but um, uh, Ocean Way out here in Los Angeles. And uh, there was two studios called Ocean Way. And, and one of them is called, uh, I think it's called Cello now. And uh, I still work there. I have got a session there next week. And that's a great studio. We recorded Johnny Cash, with Johnny Cash and the Heartbreakers in there. Sound City, where we recorded Wildflowers. That's a, a, a amazing studio. In New York, the Power Station. Can't can't forget the Power Station. Right Track. That was a great studio to work in in New York, uh, as well. Abbey Road, in in London. Muscle Shoals in Alabama. Uh, and uh, recently I got to work in uh, RCA, uh, classic RCA studios in uh, in Nashville. 
And then there's all the other little studios that people have where they have amazing equipment that they collected. Uh, I, I don't have to worry about vintage stuff. They got loads of vintage. What drum kit do you want to use? They had the five or six Gretches, five or six Lud- old Ludwigs, or you know, all all the all the snare drums. A collection like I got a snare drum, and uh, I'm like a, a, a like a kid in the candy store when I go to those studios. You know? And uh, um, yeah, there's a there's a lot of really great studios out there, and and I love my studio, my my little studio. Here they do. I got some good mics, great drums, and uh, some uh, really good uh, preamps. And uh, when lockdown happened, I got uh, my my Pro Tools guy that I was talking to that fixed my Pro Tools before I spoke to you. I called him up. I was in New York and I saw everything shut down. I was in New York uh, doing a TV show, Seth Meyers TV show, and uh, and and I saw everything shut down. I saw a Times Square completely empty in the morning. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to have to, how am well, I going to have to do, do something about this? This is not going to, this is going to last for a long time. So I called, I called up John when I got, when I got back to Los Angeles. I said, listen, is there a way to get engineered remotely? You know, and he said, yeah, sure. He said, I said, well, what will it cost to update my studio to do that? So eight to $10,000 and I had the money. So I sprung for that. Uh, and my good friend Eric Thorngren, who's an amazing engineer, who I'd worked with in numerous studios in New York, uh, he lives in Long Beach, and now we can do sessions like this. He, he, we're on Zoom like we are now, and uh, he he keys into my system, and he he came up, set everything up. I had a little bit of a learning curve to turn stuff on and and uh, adjust some levels if if it was needed, but um, we worked all through the lockdown. It was wonderful. People ask me, what's your favourite venue to play at? You know, a, a, a live venue, too. That's another question that comes up. I, I, I can't say one. I mean, uh, you got the Hollywood Bowl, <laughs> uh, Red Rocks, Madison Square Garden, the Royal Albert Hall, and uh, a place called the Gorge Amphitheatre up, up, up north, and the Baked Potato. It's a little club. I was couple of maybe 150 people you can get in there cram them in but it's it's those venues that somehow they've had so much music in them got been played in it seems to have soaked into the walls and when you play in there it sounds it sounds fantastic and and uh the atmosphere is fantastic so the same with the studios you know they've had so much music made in them that music has soaked into the walls it's just a part of the building makes my life easier, you know, to play in them. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Gretsch now and um, how you joined the company or how you had your first Gretsch kit. Well, when I first started playing, uh, I knew absolutely nothing about drums. Everybody comes here, they don't know anything about drums, right? All you know is that you want to play the drums and you see people playing the drums and then, you know, you find out how expensive everything was. It was basically now, if you look at it, it's free. I wish I bought everything, <laughs> everything back then in the, in the 60s. I bought like loads of Gretsch drum kits. <laughs> but um, I, asked, I started asking people, you know, what is, what's the best drum kit? I mean, it's kind of like when I was growing up and I'd see people driving cars and you'd just say, well, what, what's the best car? People in England would say Rolls Royce, 
Uh, in America, they'd say Cadillac. I guess in Germany, they'd say Mercedes. You know? <laughs> then it was that, well, yeah, I'd like to play one of them. Way too, way too uh, out of my price range, you know, completely. I started off with a makeup drum kit and, and then graduated to a pre, uh, what the, an Olympic drum kit, which is a intermediate drum kit from Premier. But I used to go and play in this club and all these guys used to come through, uh, all these bands would come through there. The Who, all the, all the Liverpool bands, the Searchers, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, they'd all come down to Brighton in my hometown and they'd play on the weekends in this club. And my band, was the local band, would open up for them. And because it was a very small club, they'd have to take, either take their drum kit off and let me set up my drum kit because there wasn't any room. Or they would say to me, okay, you can use this drum kit, but you have to use your own snare drum and your own, bring your, get your own foot pedal, bass drum pedal. So I got to play all these, all these drum kits. I got to play Slingerlands. I got to play Ludwig's a lot. Uh, Slingerland and Ludwig was really Trixons. But I, nobody ever had a Gretsch, you know, and I figured because it was so expensive at that point in time, you know, nobody could afford one, you know. Uh, only American artists could had them, and, and basically, uh, they, they never bought them over uh, with them. The only person that I saw that had a Gretsch drum kit was Charlie Watts, and uh, uh, with the Rolling Stones, and his sound was incredible. He had fantastic sound, and so uh, there I was uh, looking at I'd see the occasional piece person play them. They always sounded great, but I'd never never got my hands on one. Then I got this really good gig with Average White Band and I started to make some money and it was like, right, that's it, going to get me a Gretsch. So uh, uh, I, got my, I got my first, uh, my first Gretsch. Uh, it was a, 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 the stop, stop, sign, stop sign Gretsch, just a, a wood, wood shell one. And then uh, later on I moved on to the, uh, the, you see that black and white snare drum there? It's uh, uh, my first uh, uh, Gretsch kit that I... Uh, that I got for myself. Um, uh, I, got black, I got the black and white mode because it was the average white band. And, uh, and uh, uh, so I made white, white, and then with a black stripe through the middle, and the black stripe was me. <laughs> <laughs> me and soul music. And it sort of ran through the middle, middle of the... So, so there was a, a message in the drum kit uh, as well. Boy, I loved that kit. I, I just had it refurbished and... Uh, uh, I've got. It. I haven't that managed to get it out uh, to play it again yet, but I, I'm looking forward to the day I get to do that. So, how old are the snares that you've got? I mean, when do they range back to? These three here are 1920, so they're 100 years old. That there is a, a, a that's the the three, uh, two engraved black beauties and one not engraved black beauty, uh, and then there's a, a Slingerland, uh, a Radio King. There's a couple of those in there. Uh, everything else, uh, that 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 drum kit, that drum there, the sunburst drum, that's a uh, from the pearl kit that I used uh, on Twenty Four Nights uh, with Eric Clapton, and uh, up until the one that's on the kit there right now is brand new, brand new Gretsch Brooklyn shell. They go from being a hundred years old to uh, uh, brand spanking new, and they all they all have a job. They all get used to. I listen to a song and I say, yeah, maybe, let me try this snare drum on that, on that song because I kind of know what quality they have and what they can do. 
And sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. But I've got plenty to choose from. If they don't like one, they can always find one that they do. You know. And do you kind of actively seek out more to add to your collection or is it more like a sentimental something that you've used on something and then? Well, they find me more than I find them. You know, it's uh, um, just a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine was on uh, on the uh, East Coast. I think he was... Um, uh, he was up near Boston somewhere, and he and he went to a drum store up there, and and uh, he called me up, he FaceTimed me, and he said, "Hey, he said you'd love this place, man. He's a producer. He said you'd love this place. They got some great drums in here." And he said, "Look at this drum. He says, it's a hundred years old." And he um and he pulled out this this drum, and he hit it, and it sounded great over the phone. I said, "Put the owner on the phone to me." I said, "How much do you want for that drum?" <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's wonderful being me because they they tell me the price and then they they say, well, because it's you and I know you're going to use it, you know, we give it to you at half price, and so uh, it's wonderful. I really hope when I do uh, pack it all in, or I do hope if my son has to do it, he has instructions to pass on the drums as they were they were given to me, uh, which is uh, not to be all about the money, but find people who, who want them, who, who can play them, who, who wants to play them. Because uh, it, it seems such a shame that they have these wonderful instruments that, that can do so much for a song. People put them in glass cases just to look at them and say, that belonged to so-and-so. Uh, they need to be played. They need their love of being played. Do you have other drummers in your family? Have your children followed on from you? No. No, none of them. <laughs> No, uh, you know, uh, they know, they know, they got the motor skills. They know how to mess around on a drum kit, but they're useless. All of them are useless. <laughs> but they're really good at other things. I had two sons that were really great. They really loved playing basketball. And, uh, and two daughters that really, I think they really like sex because they have three boys each. <laughs> I don't know where they got that from. Must have been their moms. <laughs> this is turning out to be a very, very exclusive episode of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it happens, you know. I have four marriages. I'm not. This isn't bragging, right? This is this nothing. It's nothing to be bragging about, really. But I had four marriages. I had two children with one of my wives. And then I had two ch- children with two other, two other, two other women. Gratefully, three out of four of them have forgiven me for it. <laughs> and uh, I, I, out of the whole thing, I have nine grandchildren. I love my grandchildren. I love all my children, and uh, and and I guess I, I, I love all my uh, my ex-wives for giving me such a wonderful family. Yeah. So uh, yeah, there you go. Okay, I just wanted to ask you a bit about Brighton, which you'd already mentioned anyway. And do you still go back there when you go to the UK or? Yeah, I mean, I haven't been there since lockdown. I mean, I love my hometown. It's a, it's a wonderful town, Brighton. But, you know, they had uh, uh, the Premier League uh, came, came to the United States uh, this summer and uh, they played some exhibition games. And fortunately... Brighton, the Seagulls, ended up in the top six of the Premier League this year. 
and uh, and I was watching them on the TV, and, and every game was totally exciting, and uh, um, and even to, lost their manager. Got a gr- we lost a great manager to they stole him. Chelsea stole him, and then we got another one. Roberto De Zerbi came in, got a fantastic manager, and he's put together a fantastic team. and And the thing I love about about Brighton is is that it seems that they've got this formula. They have they have fantastic players, and and then other teams come in and they take those players. They really take care of their players. They take care of their players, and and they get them the best deals. And none of the players seem to leave with any kind of animosity at all. They they leave loving Brighton. They do move on because their careers kind of demand it. But uh, there's this a uh, uh, camaraderie in between the players. They know and like each other. And so I went to Philadelphia and saw them play Chelsea. And I bought a ticket right behind the the, the uh, Brighton dugout, which was in the middle of the Chelsea fans section. So I walk in there with my Brighton hat, my Brighton shirt with Ferroni written on the back. And I walk in there and they're all like, what's he doing over here? And I'm like, you know, I'm here to see my team. I don't know about you. <laughs> So, so I go and I sit down. I, I sit down and I'm watching the game. Half time, one all, right? Really good, great playing. Watching that that level of of playing is just amazing. They come out for the second half, and one of our players brutally fouls one of one of the Chelsea guys and gets sent off. And I think he got sent off more because there was more Chelsea fans than there were Brighton fans. And they were sort of like, oh, send him off. And the referee got influenced and sent him off. So now we're down to 10 men, right? So Chelsea immediately take advantage of it. All of a sudden, we're 4-1. We're down 4-1. And, and I'm sitting there going, oh, Jesus, 4-1. And the, the, this couple that are sitting next to me, they look at me and they say, oh, we're sorry. And I look at my watch and I say, what are you sorry for? We've got 20 minutes to go yet, right? My Brighton, they never give up. They never give up. They came back, they scored two more goals, so now it's 4-3. And all these Chelsea fans are being very quiet. And I was standing in the middle of them, singing, <laughs> singing good old Sussex by the sea. Good, Come on, sing, sing. Good old Sussex by the sea. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, my cousin, my cousin, I still got the relatives there. My cousin, David, uh, uh, lives in Brighton and, and uh, he's, he's promised me when I go there, if there's a game on, I get to go see him play at the Amex Stadium. And that's a, a next time I go there, I might even go there just for that because I can do that now. <laughs> OK, I've got a question for you now, which. Um, yeah. Uh, these can be artists who are still with us or who have who have passed on but who would you choose to have in your own super group well I'd have Michael and Randy Brecker for sure I'd have Benmont Tench from the Heartbreakers I'd have Mike Campbell from the Heartbreakers I'd have Hamish Stewart from Average White Band Will Lee Osnoy, Ray Barreto, 
God, who else? Jaco Pastorius. <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. It would be it would be a gigantic band. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it would be it would be huge. John Coltrane, <laughs> Jack to Johnette, <laughs> play drums with me. <laughs> Elvin Jones. God, I don't know. There's just so there's just so many. There's been so many fantastic musicians. Uh, 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 what astonishes me is that, is that I was walking down the street in, in Chicago and I had a T-shirt with Jimi Hendrix's face on it and, and there was this young black girl that was walking towards me and she said, excuse me, sir, who is that on that T-shirt? And I said, what? <laughs> what? And just, just the most innovative guitarist of this century guy's name is Jimi, Jimi Hendrix go get on your computer and look him up you know it's amazing uh, today uh, uh, I don't know if you know who Bob Lefsetz is he's a, a writer here yeah, a columnist a really great guy I, I, I did a, an interview with him and he, he was writing about that uh, the other day is that you know, you know I think Every band or every musician, when, when they start to play, they imitate or, or they're influenced by other musicians. Myself, Bernard Purdy was, was very influential. In my, when, I, when I first heard drumming, like, I'd never heard syncopation like that before. So there's a lot of stuff that he did that I stole, <laughs> basically, uh, that, that, that I, I emulate. But I think that when people hear me play, they can hear the influence, but they don't think about me being trying to be Bernard Purdy, because I'm not. Uh, and so when you go and see a lot of bands nowadays, you look at these bands and they're kind of an imitation of another band. You know? I'm not thinking about any one band in particular, there's a lot of them out there, you know? which is kind of normal. But they, I think to de develop their own voice. There's other bands that when, when, you, when you listen to them, you don't think about anybody else but them. Now, I, I, I'm going to use one example because there's a band I really like a lot. There's a band called Larkin Poe. There's uh, two, young lady, two young ladies, Rebecca and, um, uh, and Megan Lovell, who were, who were influenced by the, by the blues, uh, found out they're influenced by Sunhouse. But they're so authentic in their own in their own presentation of it. It's wonderful to see that that that, that, that is still alive. I do say that yeah. I mean, there's a guy at the moment who's got a hit record, in, and uh, and I think he calls it um, uh, Re Marvin Gaye Reborn. I think is the album is called. And I listened to it the other day, and I uh, I knew Marvin, and I was a huge Marvin fan. And and this guy's got a great voice. He really is a good singer, you know. And uh, I don't know about his other work. Uh, if this was meant to be a tribute to Marvin, he did a really good job. But, but I would say, don't stay there, because you are you. And, and, and I can hear that sort of a little bit in some of the performances on there, where he starts to poke through. You definitely have some value of your own. I, I want to I I listen to you and, and say... I love this guy, you know. I, I already love Marvin Gaye, you know, uh, and there already was one, 
and uh, and uh, and and like I say, you did a great job of it, but 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 don't stay there. Yeah, you know? uh, always always keep moving. That's what I loved about working with Tom Petty was that he, yeah he he always was writing new songs and coming up with new stuff and different stuff. It would sound different. It would uh, we play different. We just uh, and um, he was fearless when it came to that and. His his thing was look look you know what uh, I've made a lot of money from doing what I do uh, and and I I could just sort of stay here and just do a greatest hits and and for the rest of my life but it doesn't mean because I made a lot of money doesn't mean I, I get to stop being an artist and that's what really what's important you, know, you, you, you got to keep being an artist can't just sort of rest on your laurels. How early on were you involved in the process of songwriting or on putting together your parts for Tom? Well, I mean, I never really, it, that wasn't it really. I mean, you know, Tom would show up with a guitar. Uh, the first song that I cut with him is You Don't Know How It Feels. And he just this is how the song goes. And we just played it. And uh, it was funny because... I showed up for this session. I didn't even know who it was for. I walk into the studio and it was Mike Campbell and I'd met him before with George Harrison and Tom Petty, right? And it was like, oh, so this is who this session's for. They wouldn't tell, nobody would tell me who the session was for. <laughs> we sat down and we started to play this song. We ran it down and I remember Rick Rubin was producing and Rick came in and he said, I don't like the sound... We had all these room mics up and the cymbals are just making too much noise in the in the in the room. He said, What can we do about that? I said, Well, I will play a take and I won't do any crashes, I'll overdub them after. He said, Okay. So we cut we cut it. We sat down and we played it. And and then he said, Oh, we got it under control now. So you know, just play normally, just and we played it, you know, through the basically most of the rest of that, that session those sessions, like six hours of working on that song. When the when the song came out, a friend of mine called me up from Nashville, Dave Santos, called me up from Nashville and he said, are you playing on that new Tom Petty single, You Don't Know How It Feels? I said, yeah. He said, well, he said, it's driving me crazy. There's no crashes on there. <laughs> you didn't hear one crash. So we had it a, like a couple of takes in. But I remember when we did that and we went into the control room to listen I was standing behind the board and Tom was in the front with Mike and 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 Rick and Jim Scott. They listened they were listening to a song. I'm standing there. And Tom turns around and looks at Mike and he says, Why? Wow, what a difference a drummer makes. And and I'm standing there and I'm going, Well what what does that mean? <laughs> he might hate me. <laughs> you know, you never know. And then he looked at me and he said, oh, don't worry, you won. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that was it, basically. The number of times people come and talk to me about that track, about how it feels. I never stopped to think about how, you know, about me, about what I'm doing, my parts. It's not important. It's like, how am I sounding in with this band? How am I sounding in this song? I know some young drummers that I, that I know, friends of mine, and and they, they've got a, a gig coming up and... Uh, uh, they got and they go home and they study everything that's on the on, on you know what they what they got to learn and I'm like well you know 
just take the important bits. There's certain bits that are important that you can't, that you're going to have to do. But own this thing yourself, you know. Again, it's be authentic, you know, be, be um, uh, uh, creative. Because uh, sometimes people don't know what, what they want or people think that they want one thing and then you'll play something that's completely different because of what you feel and, and, and they say, oh, well, that, that sounds great. Think about the song. Think about the song and about making whoever's singing it as comfortable as they can be. It's not about you. It's not about the drummer. It's, it, it's about the it's, drums are a great support system for a song. They can make or break a song. So that really that's what you're And, you know, like I say, thinking about the sound of how it's going to sound, which, which, snare, drums, which snare drum is going to make this, this, uh, uh, this, this thing sound great. Not good, great. I hate that when you're in a studio and you finish a, tra- a, tra- a track and guy says to you, oh, that, that, that was really good. Uh, good? <laughs> we're, not, we're not in a business of good here. We're in a business of great. Let's see if we can do this a bit better. <laughs> have you always had this kind of point of view or have you gone through periods of your career where you've not been so confident or not so relaxed in what you're doing? When I listened to some of the, some of my early recordings, uh, 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 Freddie King's Burglar was like about the first my first session as a as a as a session man, as a, a you know being a sideman. When I listened to that, I was like, "Wow, you know the exuberance of youth." As a matter of fact, um, uh, there was a, a some guys recut of all the Freddie Freddie King album, the whole album, and they invited me to play on one track and they said what track would you like to play and I said well listen I I never really liked that track what I played on Texas Flyer I always thought I could do a better job on Texas Flyer so we go into the studio we start playing and in the end I couldn't play anything else (laughs) (laughs) dang I did have it right first time it it just it felt so good (laughs) It's really thinking about the song and how 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 that song is going to work. There's some really great versions of other songs too. I mean, uh, there's some really great versions of cover songs uh, that, that that are around. They're always, uh, I think, it, you know, you have to find the bit where you can be the, the the sweet spot where you can be true to the original, but still make it a little bit different. I've cut. I think I've cut rock steady. Uh, I think I've, I may have recorded that song about four times, you know, and and every time I've gone in to record it with someone, they've always had another idea of how rock steady should go. And I, I've tried their ideas, and then just for the hell of it, I just started to play Purdy, you know, and uh, and I channeled Purdy, and and that was the one that always got taken because Purdy did such a great job of putting his mark on that song. Uh, 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 ain't any other way to play it. I've seen that recently you worked as a music supervisor on a film. Can you tell me a bit more about that? My ex-fiance, uh, Cassidy, Cassidy Harrison, uh, she's now a friend and I'm godfather to her son. She's, uh, she's been working on, on, uh, on, on B 
been in the film industry for years and uh, she stayed with it and finally she got a, an opportunity from an Irish production company uh, to do a short called The Life of Lester Wink. The film is about a guy who's uh, he's introverted, he's terrified of everybody and to make everything worse, his job is salesman. <laughs> so... He's a door-to-door salesman. So every time he walks up to a door, he's terrified of everybody, you know. He's like the world's worst. And he's, his boss gets really fed up with him and says to him, look, you've got to, you have to make a sale. Uh, and he sells pet insurance, which isn't easy, right? So he, he's, he's got to make a sale today. So the only reason that I'm hiring you is, is that, you know, you're my, you're my, my, my wife's uh, second cousin. So, so I'm going to fire if you don't make a sale. And the only thing that calms him down is is the music of Dolly Parton. He loves Dolly Parton. So Cassidy, I said, she says, can you help me get the licensing for this movie? And I said, well, okay, yeah, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. She said, I'll make, you, I'll make you music supervisor. I said, oh, okay, fine. So I start looking for these two songs, nine, nine to Five, of course. She wanted Nine to Five in there. And she wanted Islands in the Stream. I called a... a George Draculius, who was uh, partners with Rick Rubin in their production company and even produced one of Tom Petty's side. But he does a lot of movie uh, uh, music supervision. And I said, uh, listen, I've got to get these songs. Can you help me out? He said, yeah, sure. So he shoots me a couple of numbers uh, of, of, of people and uh, and then I had to start looking for this thing. And, and 9 to 5 was pretty easy because it was Dolly Parton's song. And so I just had to get hold of Dolly Parton's people and and uh, get get them a copy of the script and let them approve uh, that it was say it was okay to use a song in it. But Islands in the Stream was a bit more difficult because it was the Bee Gees, Dolly, and Kenny Rogers, and so there was all this publishing that was and and that became a nightmare to try and try and put together. Now what I did was I said the hell with it. I'm, I, every time I sent out an email, I put Steve Ferroni, drummer Tom Petty in the Heartbreakers, <laughs> and and I get I get, it's like sometimes you just got to. <laughs> I got to tell you that people uh, uh, at the record companies uh, uh, at the uh, uh, I forget what companies they were now, but it was there was it was numerous companies w- were so helpful. Uh, in getting all this uh, paperwork and and uh, and stuff together to get the licensing, the festival licensing, it's been in a couple of festivals. It's it's a pretty nice movie. It's it's, uh, it's really uh, really is fun to do. Do you think that's something that you'd look to do more of in the future? Yeah, I you know it, I like doing anything with music. It's fun to do stuff with music. I mean, I, I guess you always have to be prepared. Uh, for somebody to turn around and say no in that situation, oh, I don't want my song to be used in that in that situation. Everybody was uh, was really helpful, and and it was a good it was a good film. It was very complimentary uh, to Dolly Parton and and her music, and and uh, and and inspiring uh, how it could be inspiring uh, to people uh, uh, that had that were particularly over shy, you know, and uh, and so. Uh, uh, they like the idea of it. I like the idea of it. And you know what? Yeah, it's a challenge. It's it's a, it's a. I actually did a course 
I did a I did a little course once at UCLA for music supervision, but I <laughs> I got into a fight with the teacher because <laughs> the, the teacher had such disdain for musicians. You know, they said, "Well, yeah, you know, you might need a little extra extra something. You can find some musician to do to put some music in there for ten dollars." And I'm like, "Well, what musician's that?" <laughs> you know, and they said, "Well, there's." So and so, he mentioned somebody's name. So and so, he's a really good musician, and he does that. And I said, "Really? I never heard of him." You know, uh, 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 and it just seemed to me like you're getting somebody to, to use their use their art for you know and their musical ability for ten dollars. There was this huge, like, well, it wasn't a fuck, well, it wasn't a, actually a punch up, but it was it was a verbal punch up that happened in there. You know, it's like. Well, you don't know anything about any good musicians then, obviously, do you? If you want the music to be good, you have to hire good musicians. It was good. It kept the class really amused. <laughs> so I, I don't know how great a music supervisor I'm going to be if, <laughs> if I'm going to take care of my musicians and make sure they get paid. And <laughs> they always do that in music, in movies. You know, it's like, the last thing that they, they, they have, they have these budgets and they, you know, and it might be a million dollar budget, which is just a little, it's a small budget when it comes to a movie, you know, $500,000. Sounds like a lot of money for, you know, cause you, I could make probably six albums with that kind of money. But, um, it always seems to me that, 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 that they, they're really concentrating on a visual. And then as an afterthought, Oh, we need to have music. So, uh, and then they call, they call up and they say, well, you know, we've only got like $500. Can you put them in? It's like, well, you had a million dollars a little while ago to do all this other stuff. You know, so you know, negotiating the back end and uh, um, so that everybody, everybody's happy or, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. I'd like to do something for the musician like that. Yeah. Yeah. Send me your movies. <laughs> Send me your movies and then and the help a musician. How's that? <laughs> Drum wise, what do you have coming up? Uh, well, I've uh, in September. I'm going to go out and play with Mike Campbell's uh, band, the Dirty Knobs. I'm going to go do a bit of touring with that. I have a session with a new artist. I don't even know his name. Uh, uh, next, uh, next, next Wednesday, on most Tuesdays, but not every Tuesday, I go and play jazz in a coffee shop in Pasadena at eight thirty in the morning, and <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, people people say you do what? And I say, yeah, I go eight thirty in the morning, and there, and I got my little jazz kit, and uh, and we play completely acoustically, upright bass, uh, piano, and and drums, and it's packed. It's absolutely packed. That's at Jones Coffee Roasters in Pasadena. If anybody's listening and wants to go, uh, they're there whether I'm there or not. I really enjoy uh, going there and playing there with uh, Matt Politano. He's a great pianist, great great keyboard player, and uh, uh, we have a lot of fun doing that. And then you know, there's a there's a little bit of this, a little bit. I go with Generation Band called Generation Radio, uh, which f- features members uh, of Jason Sheff from Chicago and uh, Jay Demarco from from uh, uh, Rascal Flats. And uh, we go out at the odd weekend and uh, usually go and do private gigs, but every once in a while we go play a club. And uh, and that's always always a lot of fun to do, and then when the phone rings, I'm there. That's my my job. 
And personally, for your own playing, is there ever anything that you feel the need to work on or improve on or learn? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, oh, oh, I forgot. Uh, December, it's either the 5th or the 6th I'm going to be playing with Osnoy in uh, in uh, New York in uh, uh, I think uh, the uh, the bitter end and uh, that's uh, that's going to be a lot of, a lot of fun I'm looking forward to that Osnoy his music is really hard you know I play the easier side of his music I don't play that really difficult stuff that he does I remember when he first asked me to play he said he said he said Steve he said talking to Will Lee would you, would you, I'm going to do a gig in Los Angeles. Will you come and play with me? And I said, no. And he said, why? I said, because your music is too hard. It's too difficult. He said, we're talking about, it's, it's easy. It's, 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 I said, what planet are you from that you, that, that kind of music is easy. <laughs> so he talked me into it. So he, I said, well, you got to send me, you got to send me the stuff. So it was out of a couple of weeks. He sent me, sent me the music that we were going to do. And I, I came in here and, and I did things section by section and worked it out. And then, and then he came in a couple of days early and sat with me and pointed out where I had it completely wrong. But now that 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 stuff is after after once you've you've learned it and internalized it, it's a, you know it and, and it becomes easy. But yeah, there are some things that I have to come in here and woodshed, and and I'm glad that I do. It's fun to have a challenge. Sometimes it's not about playing it perfectly. Sometimes it's about hearing a person scuffle to get to get it right. I impress myself with that. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down and go to work and practicing and everything. It's, if I want to practice, I, I mean, I got I got pianos here, a couple of pianos. I got you know, guitars and guitars on all bases, and I call my friends and they come over and we jam. And that's what I like. I like to do that. I like to play with other people rather than sit there and practice a couple of uh, paradiddles or something. Fortunately, physically, I do pretty well. At, I, I've never been one to warm up or anything. I just sit down and start playing. First song is my warm up. So uh, physically, I do pretty good. So, yeah. I mean, good, if not great shape. <laughs> After I've been out on the road, when I've been out on the road, when I go out on the road with Mike Campbell, I go and play, you know, daily, every day, a couple of hours. Well, not every day, but every couple of days. When I get back off the road, I'm, I'm in great shape. I'm grateful for that. Is there anything that you stick to kind of regime-wise for fitness and health? Well, I used to. <laughs> I used to swim. I could swim a couple of miles in about an hour and a half. I used to box. It's all used to. I shut everything. Sort of shut down when in twenty twenty when it shut down. Since then, I've sort of uh, I haven't done anything. I I decided that I was going to do something about about my weight, so I started uh, intermittent fasting. So I eat for eight hours and uh, and I fast for sixteen every day, uh, pretty much every day. And uh, and I've I've dropped a lot of weight. Uh, I I ate like an idiot, and I was I got up to like two hundred and eighty pounds. Uh, I'm down to two twenty now, and I feel much better. My my health is much better. My 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 numbers are much better. Uh, and I keep thinking, yeah, I should do some exercising, but I just I, I I'm not enamoured with 
with the you know that whole workout thing, getting out of breath and getting. I, I just don't want to do that. I'm I'm seventy three years old. I probably injured myself doing too much, you know. But I do have to do something, and I'm I'm thinking about uh, maybe uh, doing uh, some yoga or maybe some Pilates or something. Uh, I'm still in the thinking about it. You notice? No, I say thinking about it. <laughs> well, that's the first step. <laughs> yeah, well, I, get, I just I got to go do something. Yeah. Someone will force me into it one day. So you have to be dragged places to do things that are good for me. <laughs> okay, I've got my final question. Have there ever been any moments in your career where you have felt starstruck? Mm, no. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, well, I would say pre my career, when I was a little kid, I used to go, my, my parents uh, used to take me to a, a theatre in Brighton called the Hippodrome. And they had lots of different artists that would go there. And uh, 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 seeing as I was the only black kid in the town, that's where. I was really impressed when I saw my first black group play. It was a band called uh, from uh, Five Piece, Harp, Five Five Piece Close Harmony Gospel Band called the Deep River Boys. They had a radio uh, radio show on Radio Luxembourg. They were very popular when uh, in the fifties, and uh, I got so excited listening to their music. I was a little kid. I was there, about five years old, and I was like dancing and. And the audience were looking at this little kid getting so excited about the music. And and they sent out a guy and I went back and I met them and it was really excited to meet these these guys. You know. My parents took me to see Sammy Davis Jr. And same thing happened. I got so excited, little kid, seeing Sammy Davis Jr. on the stage. And he sent his representative out and said, would you like to come back and meet Mr. Davis? <sighs> yeah, oh God, yeah, I got Really, that was an amazing experience. I got an autograph from Vera Lynn. I don't know if you remember who Vera Lynn was. We'll meet again, don't know where, sweetheart of the forces in World War II. I have her. I wasn't very excited about meeting her, somebody that. But Sammy Davis Jr. and the Deep River Boys, that was something, you know. I think, too, you know, when I remember when I was working a session once in New York, uh, it was a Shaka Khan session. George Benson was on the session. Philip Church was on the session. Uh, Anthony Jackson was playing bass. Richard T was playing uh, piano. And uh, I just, it was at Atlantic Studios and I went up there and I, I did the session. And, uh, and, and uh, Oni McIntyre uh, from Average White Band came over, to the, came over to the studio, picked me up, we were going to go and have dinner that evening after the session. And uh, he came over and he picked me up and we, we went downstairs and got in my car and we were driving across town. And Oni said to me, he said, did you think about what you just did? And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, you just played with all these guys, George Benson, Philip Church, you know, Anthony, all these, all these amazing musicians, you know, and I, and I stopped and thought about that for a minute and it, and it had kind of become normal. You know, a few years before, somebody had told me that I was going to go into the studio and, and 
make music with these guys, I would have been butterflies and excited about it. But it, it just sort of became like a normal thing to do. I mean, I went in the studio and worked with Michael Jackson, and it was it was it was just working with Michael Jackson. He was, yeah, you know, he's a fantastic musician. He was a fantastic artist. He knew what he wanted. He was an amazing artist. But it was we were just doing the same thing. We were making music. As a matter of fact, you know, he he wanted me to play electronic drums on earth song and i said to him why would you want electronic drums on on a song that's called earth song <laughs> so uh, uh bill Bottrell was the producer and the engineer and he uh we got a really great drum sound I, and i said to him i said okay i'll tell you what i'll, I'll do that on the uh, on the electronic drums but afterwards i'm going to give it a pass on the on the on the, you know on these these drums and he said Oh, okay, okay, fine. Uh, and we did the electronic drums, and he came in and listened to it, and I said, well, I'm going to do pass on the real drums now. And he said, oh, no, no, you don't need to do that. And I said, well, wait a minute. You're going to tell me that Michael Jackson's going to welch on a deal? <laughs> and he said, oh, okay, okay, go on. Then. So off he went into, he had all the studios over there, over there, uh, studio, yeah, every studio running over there. And we did the drums. Didn't take long because I, I knew what the what the song was, and we made the call and waited for him. He showed up about twenty minutes later, and he sat down. And the song started, and when those drums kicked in, those real drums kicked in, that sucker was up and dancing all around the studio. And I said, "Yeah, see, now you got an earth song." <laughs> yeah, I, you know, Prince, all the, uh, you know. George Benson, all these guys, totally impressive, exciting, you know, uh, uh, starstruck. Uh, uh, no, because I'm there to do my job and uh, and uh, that's about it, really. You know. But when I think about it, probably I should be. <laughs> all right. Steve Ferroni, thank you very, very much for your time and for speaking to us. That was great. Thank you. It's been It's been really nice talking with you. So thank you for listening and a reminder that your like, comment or subscription to this podcast will go a long way. This was the last episode in our mini-series of Drum Talk International, The Gretsch Sessions. I've been your host, Gemma Hill, and this has been brought to you by Gaver Music. Thanks for joining us.